All right. Hey, there we go. So if you are a kid, sixth grade and under, uh, and I don't know if you're in middle school if you want to, I'm going to have you come up here. Mr. Andy's going to come up here, and he is going to give you a Dum Dum Sucker. That's the name brand, by the way. That's not Andy's. Uh, so go ahead and come up here if you are a kid, under sixth, sixth grade and under seventh grade, eighth grade, if you guys want to come here too. Uh, you can come up here, and I'm just going to talk to you for a second. Once you grab one, you're not going to get to choose the one you grab. You're he's just going to give you one. So while he's doing that, just kind of stay up here after he gives you one. Don't, don't go back yet. Kind of come over here this way so I can talk to you guys. Grab one from Mr. Andy. How are you guys doing this here this morning? Anybody a little bit cold? A little bit, yeah. You know, uh, Alexa said the, mo- the wind was only 2.3 miles per hour, but there's something special about our property here that we multiply the wind. All right, I want everybody, once you... Oh, we got a lot more coming from the back. All right, we're going to keep waiting for them to come. Hey, kids, how many of you guys are excited? You, can, you guys can look at me. I'm talking. You don't need to look at them. Uh, how many of you guys are excited about the summer? How many of you guys already missed school? You wish you were going to school and you weren't... Oh, we got a couple. Okay. All right. What's the What's the most exciting thing you're going to do this summer? Go camping. You are not related to me. Okay. What? Minnesota? Oh, that sounds fun. Oh, this is a family. Sweet. Yes, Charlie. All right, cool. All right, does everybody have Michigan Adventures? That sounds fun. I used to Does everybody have one? All right, I want you to look at the look at the sucker that you have. Okay, when you look at it, figure out what kind of sucker it is. And if that is the one you would pick, if you could pick any of them, raise your hand. If that is the the flavor that you would pick, you don't know. Oh, you got a question mark? Okay. All right. If uh, if it is a flavor that you like, even though it's not the one you would pick, raise your hand. All right. If you're like, I do not want this flavor. This is the wrong flavor. I'm not going to like that. Raise your hand. All right. So we got a couple of those. Well, today, today we're going to be talking about the gift of singleness. And it's a gift, whether it's the gift you would choose or not, because God is good and he gives good gifts. And so now whatever gift he's chosen, you get to accept. But today, because you're kids, we are going to allow you to exchange it if you want to before you go back. But Thanks for coming. You'll see what that means later. All right, kids, go ahead and go back to your parents. All right, that'll all make sense uh, here in a little bit. So uh, today we're we're going to be talking about singleness. In the American culture, marriage is often assumed as the ideal. And so for those of you that are out there and are single, you may get this question all the time. Hey, are, are you dating anyone? And that can be really frustrating because sometimes singleness is described in the negative, as the absence of something, as the absence of marriage. So today we had a little break. We've wrapped up our previous series. We're going to start our series in Psalms for two weeks. You may ask, why are we preaching a sermon on singleness right now? Well, uh, if you remember way back, January, February, uh, we were doing a series on 1 Corinthians. 
uh, and the, the sermon fell on 1 Corinthians 7, and it was going to be about contentment, about how to be content no matter what your relationship status is, whether you're single or married or you're a widow or you're divorced, whatever circumstance you find yourself in, how can you be content? But I got sick that week, my two kids got COVID, I got really sick, um, and so we didn't have that sermon. So. Um, as I was studying for that sermon, I just realized that as a church, we just don't talk about singleness enough. And so I said, all right, we need to put this back on uh, the calendar. So when we had this break, I said, now is the uh, perfect time to do that, to put it back on the calendar. Now, you may also be asking, Phil, why are you the one preaching this? As we sit around in staff meeting, you know, Ben and John and Justin, uh, I'm the only uh, person who's Married, and in fact, uh, I got married when I was 20. So I'm not—I haven't exactly lived a lot of adult years as a single person. So you may be saying, "Why would we choose to have this sermon be preached uh, by the lead pastor?" Well, uh, Paul addresses marriage, even though he's not married. Paul addresses parenting, even though he's not a parent. And as your role as the lead pastor, I believe it's my job to preach the word, every part of the word, uh, whether or not I fit the current circumstance. And then you may ask, why would we preach this on a a Sunday morning? Why not have a a special event where we talk about this? Well, because we all need to hear this. Uh, And the reality is, most of the time, uh, husband and wife don't die at the same time, so every single person here uh, has experienced some form of singleness in the past, and at least 50% of you that are married will most likely experience singleness in the future. And so this is something important for every Christian to consider. Not only that, but we have many different people that are part of our body that are single. In Romans 12 it says, For just as each of us has one body with many members, and these members do not all have the same function, so in Christ we, though many, form one body, and each member belongs to the others. And so with that said, I think it's important for us to talk about this as a church. So I'm going to pray, and then, and then we will dive into the text, and hopefully it will be encouraging meant to every single person here. Let's pray. Uh, God, you are so good and so gracious, and uh, in the midst of the, the wind and the, and the calm and the, and the, the cold right here, uh, Lord, uh, you're present. And uh, we're gathered here uh, somewhere in uh, in their cars, some are, are sitting um, under the pavilion, some are sitting out in the field, some are online watching on Facebook right now, and we're all gathered seeking to open your word and be changed. And so, Lord, we pray that you do that. We pray that you speak through your word today. In your name we pray. Amen. Uh, well, as I was uh, going through the First Corinthians 7 passage way back in the in the spring, winter time, uh, one of the books I came across uh, was written by a guy named Sam Albury, and I've, I've really come to appreciate Sam. Uh, Sam is one of the editors for Gospel Coalition. He writes for them often. He was a professor at, uh, Cedar, a traveling professor at Cedarville. Uh, he does a lot of talks. And one of the things I appreciate about, about Sam, Sam came to know Christ uh, as an older teenager, uh, but Sam is same-sex attracted and has decided that the only place for sex in, in, in a Christian life is in marriage, in the context of a husband and wife, and so he's cho- chosen to live as a celibate Christian for the remainder of his life. And uh, he's written some really good books. Uh, we actually went through one of them when we went through Romans, Is God Anti-Gay? And it's a great little uh, thing to read. We, I think we have to sell some copies if you want to read it. But I just really appreciate his 
his voice on this. And, and so he's chosen to live as a celibate single for the rest of his life. And he wrote a book uh, entitled Seven Myths of Singleness. And I thought if I'm going to uh, talk about singleness, I, I don't have a lot of experience myself to, to speak from. So I thought, why not take uh, this book and kind of walk through these myths uh, to help our people think through it. Now, because of timing and because of the context of the kids that are in the audience, we, we can't talk extensively through each of these seven myths. So I want to encourage you to pick up that book. It's called Seven Myths of Singleness by Sam Albury. But I want to walk through these, and some of them are going to spend a little more time, and others briefly, just hopefully so we can think biblically about this issue. Because our culture is communicating one thing, and we want to make sure that, that we are communicating what the Scriptures say. So the first myth is that singleness is just too hard. Singleness is too hard. It's, it's a myth about singleness. In our culture, it's not so much that singleness is too hard, but the concept of celibacy see, is seen as too hard. I remember I was uh, teaching uh, a lesson in middle school when I was a, a youth pastor, and we, we tackled really tough issues, and we sent a letter home to the parents, let them know exactly what we were teaching, but we were uh, teaching on sex that day, and, and I was talking to this middle schooler, and I was talking about how God has designed it between man and woman for the context of marriage. And he, he said, I've never heard that before. I didn't know anybody waited until they got married. I, had, I never heard that concept. That concept was so foreign to them. And, uh, and Hollywood is putting out movies like 40-Year-Old Virgin, and it's meant to be a comedy, like how could someone who's 40 be in this state? This is what the culture is communicating. As the culture is communicating that celibacy and this biblical lifestyle of singleness is just too hard. But in Matthew 19... Uh, Jesus is asked about divorce, and, and they ask him in a way to try and trick him. And he shares, okay, these are the scenarios that it's okay for someone to divorce. And the, the disciples say, well, if that's a situation between a husband and a wife, it is better not to marry. They say, that, that seems like it's too hard. And Jesus replied, not everyone can accept this word, but only those to whom it has been given. For there are eunuchs who were born that way, and there are eunuchs who have been made eunuchs by others, and there are those who choose to live like eunuchs for the sake of the kingdom of heaven. The one who can accept this should accept it. And he said, look, there's, there's a lot of different single people. In that day, uh, there were eunuchs, and, and, and there were some that, that were unable to have uh, physical relationships from birth, and so uh, there was those people. Then there were some that were slaves that were... Uh, there were Things done to them so that they could no longer procreate. And so they were made that way. But then there's this third category, which is where we find our singles today. He said there are eunuchs who choose to live like eunuchs for the sake of the kingdom of heaven. So the disciples say, marriage is too hard. And Jesus says, yes, it can be. But here's this picture of singleness. And from the scriptures, we see that sex outside of marriage is sinful. But the marriage between is between a man and a woman for life. And the godly alternative to that is what Jesus presents here. Someone to choose to live a, a celibate lifestyle for the sake of the kingdom of heaven. So Jesus says, yeah, marriage is hard. And so because of that, he urges celibacy. But in our culture, we tend to have the opposite. We tend to think that singleness is too hard, so we encourage marriage. We have to realize that Jesus was the most complete human that ever lived. And yet he was single. He never married. He was never in a romantic relationship. He never had sex. 
And he doesn't call singles to do something that he never did. Jesus in his life demonstrates that marriage, sex, and romance aren't necessary to be fully human. You can have a full and complete life without those things. And this idea of myth, this, this myth that singleness is too hard, what it does is it elevates the struggles of singleness above all other struggles. It says this is the, the struggle that's too hard. First Corinthians 7, Paul says, those who marry will face Many troubles in this life. I don't want to spare you this. Paul is saying, if you're single, you're going to be spared, actually, from a lot of troubles. Uh, those of you that are, are, are married and, and parents, you experience a lot of different worldly troubles. Marital conflict, disobedient kids, kids with health risks, kids with disabilities, kids who walk away from their faith when they're teenagers. See, marriage and singleness are both full of goodness and hardship. And the temptation is... If you're single, you elevate the lows of singleness, or you, t- you think about the lows of singleness and all the highs of marriage, and you compare them, and marriage looks really better. But on the flip side, often when you're married, you can compare the lows of marriage with the highs of singleness, and then you can have that same discontentment creep into your life. Because the grass always looks greener on the other side. When you think of it with toddlers and little kids, you think, man, it would be so great to be single. We're experiencing days of being alone as a single person. Man, it'd be so great to be married. See, when we elevate our hardships because of our status, we miss out on the blessings. So singleness may be hard, but getting married doesn't fix that problem. So, so Sam Albury says there's this myth that singleness is too hard, but there's also a myth that exists that says singleness is easy. It's easy. You don't have to deal with all this other stuff. It's easy. Christian leader and writer Kate Warden said this. When we have to fill in a form and tick a box marked single, when we are faced with a two-for-one supermarket offer and we know that we'll end up throwing away half, when we steal ourselves to enter a party alone, when we need someone to hold the other side of a piece of furniture we are building, when we come home to an empty house and there is no one to tell about the highs and lows of our day, At these times, and at many others, being single can feel like the raw end of the deal. So even though there's this myth that it's too hard, there's also a myth that it's easy. And singleness can have a lot of unique difficulties. Uh, Sam talked about these conversational cul-de-sacs when you're meeting new people. You know, you start asking, where do you work? And then... You say, are you married? And if, if the answer to are you married is yes, then okay, do you have kids? And if the answer is that's yes, and, and okay, what, how old are your kids? And there's, these, there's a lot of roads to go down the conversation, but you call singleness a conversational cul-de-sac. Are you married? No. And then oftentimes when interacting with a married person, then they don't know what to ask next. They said that can be awkward as a, as a single person. It can be awkward, awkward to constantly get questions about your dating life. And I know I'm guilty of this with Kai. Kai's 22, he's, he's in Chicago, and, and to be honest, we just really want some Asian grandbabies. And uh, we've heard all the amazing things about being grandparents, and we've heard how amazing it is, so we're like, Kai, let's, let's you know, get on the train. But instead of this, I'm realizing, like, I'm, I'm perpetuating some of these myths, and I'm putting pressure on my son that he doesn't need. And so my own desire for grandkids is not worth putting pressure on my son. There's also this idea that as your friend's status changes, that changes the relationship. Sam talked about 
Um, one of the most difficult things is when a friend gets married. He's excited about it, but a lot of times those friends go from doing life together friends to catching up friends. Instead of doing life together, it involves, well, we'll get together every once in a while and we'll catch up on what's been going. And, and that can be difficult. And there's a lot of other different kinds of situations that as singles, it can be, it can be tough to navigate. It can be hard to do. And so we need to recognize that, that this can be a hardship. And so Sam concludes that chapter with this. The key to contentment as a single person is not trying to make singleness into something that will satisfy us. It is to find contentment in Christ as a single person. So there's the myth that it's too hard. There's a myth that it's easy. The third myth is that it requires a special calling. I was on the phone um, with a friend pretty recently. Uh, not someone that goes to this church, but someone who loves the Lord knows his Bible, knows theology, and, and he said something to me that I, I, I was kind of taken aback just because of who it came from, but, but he, said, uh, he, said, he said, Phil, I'm really struggling with my singleness, he said, because I'm not called to be single. I said, what do you mean? He's like, well, some people have the, 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 this gift of singleness where, where they are content and they're called to it, but, but I don't have that calling. And, and, and I was wondering, like, what is he talking about? Because he was saying, I don't have this gift of singleness. I don't have the gift of singleness. That's what he said. I don't have the gift of singleness. But is that true? Are there certain people that have a special gift, a special calling to singleness? Are those that desire marriage but are still single somehow lacking that special gift that is only given to some people that are single? In 1 Corinthians 7, Paul says, I wish that all of you were, were as I am. Now, Paul's talking about being single. And he actually says to them, I wish all of you were single. Now, does he mean that it's better to be single than to be married? No. We see in other places, Ephesians 5, and elevate marriage. But he's saying, I wish all of you were single as I am. And he continues, but each of you has your own gift from God. One has this gift, another has that. What's he talking about? He's saying, whatever your relationship status is right now, that is your gift. That is a gift from God. If you're single, that is your gift right now. You have the gift of singleness if you're single. If you're married, guess what? You have the gift of marriage right now. He uses the exact same word that he uses uh, in other places in 1 Corinthians when talking about a spiritual gift. The same word. Now, what's, what's a spiritual gift? It's, it's a gift given by the Holy Spirit when we become believers to do what? To serve. To edify the church. It's not for our good, it's for the good of others. Do we choose our spiritual gift? No. No, we don't choose it. I didn't choose to be to get the gift of preaching. In fact, when I was you know younger, I used to pray and say, God, I'll do anything you want me to do as long as I don't have to speak in front of people. But God gives us the gifts. We don't choose those gifts. He gives us the gift for the edification of others. And Paul uses that same word. In other words, if you're married... That's your gift. If you're single, that's your gift. Whatever your relationship status, that is your gift. And he explains it further in verse 17. Nevertheless, each person should live as a believer in whatever situation the Lord has assigned to them, just as God has called them. So whatever situation you find yourself in, single, married, divorced, widow, God has called you and assigned to you that situation to live in that. He doesn't say that some people have the gift of singleness and other people do not. 
Uh, Paige Brent, Brenton Brown writes this, I'm not single because I'm too spiritually unstable to deserve a husband or because I'm too spiritually mature to need one. I'm single because God is good and this is his best for me. I'm single because God is good and this is his best for me. Now some of you out there are single and you're really content. You uh, recognize the gift of your singleness and, and you're not struggling. Um, others of you have spent a lot of time praying and asking God to take the gift back. You've been looking through the Bible trying to find the terms and conditions where you can return the gift of singleness and exchange it for a gift of marriage. And he found singleness to be really difficult. At the beginning here, I gave all the kids a sucker. Well, Andy did, Mr. Andy. And uh, they didn't choose which sucker they got. He just gave it to them. And it was, it was a good gift. And a lot of times, as Christians, what we do is, when we're in the middle of some status that we don't like, we want to exchange it for another one. In the middle of a hard marriage, where things are difficult, you may often find yourself going, God, I want to exchange this gift for the gift of singleness. When you're in the middle of the thick of it, and singleness, and you feel lonely and, and alone, and, and you're like, God, I want to exchange this gift for the gift of marriage. But Paul says, look, Whatever circumstance you're in, that is a gift of God. Now Sam Albury outlines five ways where this thought really creates problem. This idea that some people have this gift of singleness and other people don't. First, it denies the intrinsic good of singleness. So if you are single and you're like, I don't have this gift, it's denying the goodness that God has provided through this gift. Two, it can encourage bitterness rather than a pursuit of godly contentment. So if you're going, well, I'm not supposed to have this gift, I'm supposed to have this other gift, then that can breed discontentment and cause you to continually want for something you don't have. Number three, it unwittingly permits disobedience. Let's say, I don't have the gift of singleness, therefore, I'm just going to pursue these relationships. You're in a context where you don't know a lot, you're not around a lot of Christians. Well, I'm going to start dating non-Christians, I'm going to start doing this stuff because I don't have this gift, I can't take it anymore. Uh, number four, what if the same logic was applied to marriage? Um, I unfortunately have had a, a number of friends recently where they've had their spouse leave them so their spouse can be true to themselves. Uh, and the marriage is ruined and the, and the kids are, are heartbroken. And it's because, of, well, this isn't, this isn't the gift God has given me. I, I need to pursue this. And number five, really, it doesn't fit the rest of Paul's teachings. Tim Keller put, put it this way. In his writings, Paul always uses the word gift to mean an ability by, given by God to build others up. Think about that. So that gift of singleness, that gift of marriage, that spiritual gift you have, it is a gift, an ability given by God to build others up. Paul is not speaking of some kind of elusive, stress-free state. Living in America, we always want comfort. Whatever is the most comfortable, whatever is the easiest, and that is not what Paul is talking about when he talks about these gifts. In summary, the myth that singleness requires a special calling does a lot of damage to both singles and those in the church that seek to walk alongside our brothers and sisters who are single. Alright, fourth myth. Singleness means no intimacy. Unfortunately, in our culture, the word intimacy is often defined in relation to physical intimacy. In the words of Sam Elberry, it has become an unquestioned assumption today. Singleness, as biblically conceived, and intimacy are alternatives. A choice to be celibate is a choice to be alone. Uh, 
June is Pride Month. We see the flags everywhere we go where many people are celebrating, tying their very identity to their physical attractions. But the Bible says, look, the only godly alternative to marriage given is abstinence. It is celibacy. And unfortunately, many people, including Christians, have started to buy the line that the choice of celibacy is a choice of loneliness. Now, if that's the case, Jesus, Paul, and many of the other disciples lived their lives without any true intimacy or lacking in some way. We know that's not the case. So we need to rethink our idea of intimacy. One of my favorite uh, relationships in the Bible is that between David and Jonathan in the Old Testament. And they were dear friends. And, and, And David was... Mary, we know of at least eight of David's wives, King David. Um, he may have had more than that. We know Jonathan was married, and yet in the midst of this, they, they maintained this deep friendship. In 2 Samuel 1, after Jonathan dies, David cries out and says, How the mighty have fallen in battle. Jonathan lies slain on your heights. I grieve for you, Jonathan, my brother. You are very dear for me. Your love for me was wonderful, more wonderful than that of a woman. David is saying this this friendship was deeper than anything I had with my wives. And now that has led for for some liberal scholars to to say that, well, okay, that means that that King David was gay. But there's no evidence for that anywhere. Um, We see this intimate friendship with Jonathan described, and our culture can't seem to quantify a friendship that is truly intimate. You see, it's possible to have a lot of sex and no intimacy at all. We see that probably in King David and, and King Solomon. And I've seen that in marriages that I've counseled before where the physical part of the relationship is going great, but everything else, there's no emotional intimacy. But it's also possible to have a lot of intimacy and absolutely no physical relationship. And our culture has a hard time understanding that or seeing that. Uh, five months ago, uh, my friend Don died. And the, the waves of grief just, just keep hitting at really weird moments. Uh, this weekend, uh, my wife and I went to a, a comedy show, and uh, there was a guy that looked just like him that walked by. And then in Meyer yesterday, there was a guy that looked just, walk, looked just like him that walked by. And there's just moments where, where the grief hits. And the reason for that is because Don was a special friend. And, and in our culture, it's, it's not often to have these deep, intimate relationships. And the word for intimacy, I think the best description is, into me you see. Into me you see. Don knew all my warts, all my struggles, all my failures. He had walked through, me, through with me and cried with me in the midst of hardship and failures and mistakes and heartaches and heartbreaks. And he had cried with me in moments of joy and and, and exuberance. And and Don was an intimate friend in the emotional sense. And oftentimes we, as a culture, we we don't understand that that's actually something that's possible. That you can achieve true intimacy and relationships without any physical relationship. And the Bible talks all about that throughout the scriptures. We see these joys of these relationships. And so being single doesn't mean that you can't have intimacy. Fifth myth, singleness means no family. In Mark 3, uh, when Jesus' family comes uh, to to see him, 
instead of going out to see them, he says this, Here are my mothers and brothers. Whoever does God's will is my brother and sister and mother. Instead of going out to see his genetic family, he says, This is my family. Later in Mark 10, Jesus says, No one who has left home or brothers or sisters or mother or father or children or fields for me and the gospel, and many people had to do that in his day, if you follow Jesus, you would often be kicked out of your family, kicked out of your home. He said, no one has done that will fail to receive a hundred times as much in this present age and in the age to come eternal life. But many who are first will be last and the last will be first. He says, you're going you're gonna to get homes and brothers and sisters and mothers and children and fields along with persecutions. What's Jesus saying? He's saying that when you follow me, you're going to be part of this family of God. And so you're not just going to have a genetic family, you're going to have a spiritual family. And so, just like a genetic family has flaws, every church has church family has flaws. But we're called to love each other as a family would love each other. And we need to take this responsibility seriously. You know, we're part of fulfilling this promise that Jesus has given to Christians. Of being brothers and sisters, mothers and children to others. Of welcoming in singles and others that might not have a genetic family close. I remember when we moved to Grand Rapids, we didn't know anybody. We got plugged into a local church, and that church enfolded us. And there were people in that church, we were, we were young, married, we didn't have friends, and there weren't a lot of young married people in that church, and there were people that invited us over for dinner, invited us to the equivalent of a life group, and we, we got plugged in. And that was truly a lifeblood, even though none of those people were the same uh, life stage as us. So being single doesn't mean that you have no family. The sixth myth, singleness hinders ministry. Now, unfortunately, many churches will not consider someone who's single for a pastoral job. Um, I've seen this time and time again, and, and there's some reasons why people do that. Uh, they, they hope the, the wife has some skills, too, so you're bringing on a ministry team and uh, all those kind of things. But I found that any time you put a requirement on a pastoral position that, that Jesus or Paul wouldn't meet, then it's probably a, a biblical requirement you shouldn't have. I once heard someone say that many churches in America would be glad to have Paul as an apostle, but would not be glad to have Paul as their pastor. I'm so thankful that we hired a student ministries director and a music director that were single. Maybe it's been a blessing in my life. Uh, and they're doing a great job. And if we had limited our applications only to those who are married, we would have missed the opportunity to hire either of them. I think as a church in America, we often overlook single people for ministry positions. And I think that singles have a lot of advantages when it comes to ministry. Paul says it this way, I would like you to be free from concern, 1 Corinthians 7.32. An unmarried man is concerned about the Lord's affairs, how he can please the Lord. But a married man is concerned about the affairs of this world, how he can please his wife, and his interests are divided. An unmarried woman or virgin is concerned about the Lord's affair. Her aim is to be devoted to the Lord in both body and spirit. But a married woman is considered about the affairs of this world, how she can please her husband. I'm saying this for your own good, not, not to restrict you, but that you may live in a right way in an undivided devotion to the Lord. If you're married, you have divided attention. And, and this is a good thing. 
It's good that you have a divided attention. It's good that you set aside time to be a good husband and a good father. Uh, little kids, and you go through life stages when the kids are toddlers and, and little infants, then it's everything seems overwhelming. It's hard to do anything. Then they get to like the, where my biological kids are, where where they uh, where they're kind of more independent. And you have a little more freedom, and then they get to where the teenagers and they're driving all sorts of places, and you have all these other sports and events and things. It gets a little more busy. But singles do not have to divide their attention. In the words of Paul, they are free from concern. Their only necessary concern is about how they can please the Lord. Uh, when I was a, a youth pastor at Lowell, we, I had a moment of crisis where I recognized that I was not, I was neglecting my family. Uh, we had Sunday night church, then there was Monday night high school youth group, Wednesday night middle school youth group, Tuesday night prayer. If pastor couldn't be there, I'd lead. Uh, three out of every four weeks I had a meeting on Thursday night, and then we had... Uh, youth activities about every other week between the middle school and the high school. And so I was home usually on Tuesdays, sometimes on Friday or Saturday nights, and I actually had a deacon say to me, well, you got to think of your job as a second shift job. That's just the nature of the business. But my wife was working as a teacher. And so that meant I just wasn't seeing my wife, and I had to make a decision. We need to change something. So we moved... Middle school youth group to the same night as high school youth group, and we arranged just rearranged some things. But as we were doing that, one of my dear friends who was single was a youth leader, and he he was the only one pushing against it. He's like, we need to keep these two separate nights. Look at how well things are going. We shouldn't put it together. And then when we moved it to just one night, so he he couldn't serve in two different capacities. He had to serve in one. He was frustrated. And then a few years later, he got married, and he came to me and said, Phil, I'm really sorry. He said, I thought you were just a wimp. I didn't, I didn't understand. And then a few years later, he had kids, and he kissed me again and said, Phil, I'm really sorry. <laughs> I didn't realize the family obligations you had. But as a single person, for him to give two nights a week wasn't a big deal. That wasn't hard for him. Whereas for me, to have two nights combined with all the other nights was too much. And so singleness can be a tremendous advantage in ministry. Now, it doesn't mean that single people aren't busy, and every single person has a different schedule and a different life context. But there are typically less familial obligations for single people as there are for those that are married. So Paul says, take advantage of that. But you don't just take advantage of that by having a lot of extra free time to do everything you want. No, Paul says that... An unmarried person is concerned about the Lord's affairs and how they can please the Lord. Use that freedom as an advantage to serve the Lord. Use that freedom as an advantage to have more time to dedicate to ministry and to doing things that honor the Lord. Number seven, singleness wastes your sexuality. Now, uh, because of the context of our, or the kids and everything else, I'm not going to go into detail on that, but I encourage you to read the book. But in the words of Sam Albury, he said, Celibacy isn't a waste of our sexuality. It's a wonderful way of fulfilling it. It's allowing our sexual feelings to point us to the reality of the gospel. So that longing that we have is pointing us to the one, the only one that can fulfill it. Because only Christ truly satisfies. So as a review, here are seven myths. Singleness is too hard. It's easy. It requires a special calling. It means no intimacy, it means no family, it hinders your ministry, and it wastes your sexuality. Those are seven myths that are common, I think, even in the church. Alright, so if you're single out there, I have this challenge. Uh, One, 
Which of these myths have you believed in the past, or which of these myths did you walk into today's sermon believing? How have you seen those myths negatively impact your thoughts or your emotions? And take a moment, maybe an hour later, to write down one truth uh, that you maybe you've heard today, or go back to 1 Corinthians 7, or, or go back to Jesus' teaching in Matthew 19, or, or buy this book and think, through what's one truth that you can walk away with today to counteract the myths that, I, that have been shared? Second, if you're married, uh, which of these seven myths have you believed? And in what ways have you perpetuated those myths in your interactions with single people? What is one thing you can do to better love, serve, and support the singles at North Park? I do have uh, one suggestion. So uh, for years, North Park had life groups, and all those life groups were life stage oriented. And a very large church, you know, with thousands of people, and you have life stage oriented life groups, then there's, you know, there can be a group for singles in their 30s and singles in their 40s, and there can be a group for, uh, you know, young marrieds and marrieds with kids, but uh, in our context, we're not that big of a church, and what happened over the years through ABFs is that most of the life groups became life stage oriented, and so if you're single, but you're not necessarily a young adult, you know, you're, you're getting older, you may feel like, well, I don't, I don't necessarily fit in that group anymore. Well, then our church, the next group up, what is that? Well, that's the young married group. So now, where do you fit in? You can find that maybe I don't feel like I fit in in these groups. Or if you're married and you don't have kids and you, you say, well, I want to go to that class and you come to my class and, and the majority of us are married with kids, you can maybe feel like, okay, maybe we don't fit here either. And it can put you in a place where you might not feel like you fit in. Or maybe you've lost a spouse and you find yourself single again and and you find that I don't feel like I necessarily fit in some of these life stage groups. And so we've been talking about the goal of life stages being these smaller groups, but, but rather than trying to split up the life groups that we currently have, what we'd like to do is start one or two or, or three, we'll see how many people are interested in, uh, non-life stage oriented life groups. Where someone that's single and someone that's married without kids and someone that's married with kids and someone who's 75 can all be in the same life group. And where someone who's new, who doesn't fit into any of the life stages that some of our groups are currently mixed with, can feel like, oh, I, I feel like I fit in. Um, I just want to, we have a sign-up over there. Uh, you can sign up if you're interested in being a leader or if you're interested in participating in one. But that's just one way where we can create avenues where people that that don't maybe feel like they fit into certain groups, can't have a place to belong and to become. So that's one suggestion. Another suggestion is just think about how you say, what you say, when you say, and try and put yourself in the position of those that are single. And think through, okay, they're, they're coming to church, who are they going to sit with? Can I, can I invite them to sit with us each week? You know, if they're from out of town, can I invite them over for dinner and have them unfold them? One of the things that was so precious to us, especially this this one couple, really just enfolded us and just started inviting us over for meals. So we're new to the area, we don't know anybody, and, and now we have a place to go and a place to eat. The, the, the older uh, group, there's an old group uh, at that church on Sunday nights, they always went to, to Bob Evans. And so they invited us to go to Bob Evans. And, and we were at the point in our lives where our budget was a little too tight for Bob Evans, so we didn't go very often, but just having that invite was really helpful. And uh, so think through how you can enfold those 
that are single into our body. All right, uh, one of my favorite pastors, authors, and commentaries is John Stott. I learned this week that John Stott is single. I didn't know that. And uh, he was single his whole life, and he wrote this. If marriage is good, singleness is also good. It's an example of the balance of Scripture that although Genesis 2.18 indicates that it's good to marry, 1 Corinthians 7.1 says it's good for a man not to marry. So both the married and the single states are good. Neither is in itself better or worse than the other. So remember, whatever your status is, whether you're single or married or widowed or divorced, whatever it is, that status right now is a gift from God. And it's to be used for His glory. I want to end with a story. The Pope was making an official visit to New York City. He arrives, and as he makes his way to the car, he insists that the driver get in the back and let the Pope drive. This is against all protocols and procedures, but the driver had no choice but to obey. It was the Pope, nonetheless. If the Pope wants to drive, I'll let him drive. When is, in the Pope's enthusiasm to be behind the wheel, he ends up speeding, and the traffic officer pulls him over to book him, realizes, realizes it is the Pope, and makes a panic call to his captain. Boss, I've got a situation. I just pulled over someone for speeding, but he's really powerful. His supervisor said, is it the mayor? He said, no, more important. I said, the governor of New York? No, more important. Is it the president of the United States? He's even more important than that. Well, then who is it? I have no idea, but the Pope is his driver. (laughs) What if we trusted God to be our driver? What if we recognize that whatever circumstance we're in, that God is good and does good and loves us? Whatever our current relationship status is, how can we trust that God knows what he's doing, trust in him, and follow him, and allow him to guide us in our walk? In the scriptures it says, Thy word is a lamp unto my feet and a light unto my path. They didn't have those lamps that were super, you know, LED and could shine for miles. These were these small lamps that would just let you see the next step, what the next step is in front of you. God guides us and His Word guides us to take the next right step. And sometimes we get so worried about 15 steps from now that we find ourselves discontent and frustrated. I encourage you, whether you're single or you're married or you're divorced or you're widowed, whatever situation you find yourself in, to trust God to give you the next right step. To follow Him, and He will make your paths straight. Let's pray. Dear God, You are good, and Your love endures forever. And Lord, we just pray for those in here that are single and content. They're happy with their status. I thank You for that, Lord. I thank You that they've seen the ways that it's a benefit. Lord, I pray for those that are in here and single and discontent. Lord, they, they long to be married. They long to be in a relationship. And they have probably cried out to you many times asking for you to provide this, Lord. I pray that you give them your peace, that you help them to trust you. And Lord, that they don't know what their future holds, but they know who holds their future. Lord, there are some here who are in marriages that are, are rough and they're struggling with contentment. Lord, I pray that you'd come alongside them and heal their broken marriages. And there's some here who are single because they've lost a spouse. It wasn't 
something that they thought would happen. I pray that you comfort them, Lord, and give them your grace to handle each and every one. There may be some here in the in divorce that experience the heartache of divorce. I just pray that you comfort them in the midst of it. Uh, Lord, you are good. And help us, Lord, to not buy into the mists of the culture, to, to not get sucked into everything the culture says, but rather to recognize that you have a plan that's good, that you have created us with a purpose. We are your workmanship created in Christ Jesus to do good works which you prepared in advance for us to do. So, Lord, help us to walk in those ways. In your name we pray. Amen.